Before today's episode starts, just a quick one from us. If you're currently listening on Apple and Spotify and you enjoy listening to Strike It Big, consider leaving a five-star review along with what you thought of the pod. As the more reviews we get, the more the podcast grows and the bigger and better the guests get. Thanks in advance. Bring on the pod. I didn't care that I was being killed. I cared enough that I had something to say about who I was that when you take my life, I'm at peace. Nick Yaris, the man that spent 22 years on death row for a crime he didn't commit. He's faced brutality on an unimaginable scale, escaped prison and evaded helicopters full of armed police. After clearing his name, his mission is singular, to help others strike it big. By the time I was 18 years old, I used to have to shower with a pistol. I go down to her work to see her on December 4th and the cops pull me over and beat me. I was charged with kidnapping, robbery and murder of a woman I never met. 3,200 volts of electricity will course through your body. I beat my head against the wall every day. I was the first man in the United States to seek DNA testing to prove my innocence. Are you thinking clearly at this stage? He came down on me with the blades and the rotors just chopping everything. If you can come back from wrapping a rope around your neck and jumping off of a toilet in a cell enough to love yourself again, I think I've cracked it. Thank you, gentlemen. Welcome to the show, Nick. Pleasure. Yeah, welcome. Uh, appreciate it. It's taken a little bit of getting together, this one. It's, it uh, is. Someone I've been reading about for years and uh, looking into, so it's, uh, it's a pleasure to yeah, have you Trust here. us to have a power cut the morning that you're meant to be coming. You couldn't write it. <laughs> it. The strange thing is, it's like life, isn't it? Everything we plan for, God has a good laugh. And yeah. I've never felt like I've had more of an effort to find all the things cogent that someone wanted to speak to me about before I got there. So thank you for that. This is a first. So you spent 22 years on death row for a crime you didn't commit, but we really want to get an idea of who you were before the arrest. So can we go back to that stage of your life? Sure, of course. So early childhood, uh, Philadelphia was one of the Eastern uh, United States cities that was actually cool to grow up in. I remember going to the Strawberry Plateau and the Robin Hood Del West amphitheaters and seeing like Patti LaBelle, Teddy Pendergrass, and all these performers would come out during the summer and they would have all these soul festivals. And this is why you're really young, yeah? Yeah, so that's the that was the best part of childhood is there was so much music in Philadelphia I always remember the the strange thing is we were in a little pocket away from the rest of the city right next to the Philadelphia airport proper and it was woodlands all surrounding it and dirt country roads still mm. imagine you know just like the old Dukes of Hazard sort of areas. Yeah, so 1960s, <laughs> we're on the outskirts of the, the, the city and we live in row homes. And they're like the ones here in the small towns where you have every conceivable amount of housing on one street, yeah. on both sides. Like terraced housing. Yeah. Trying to pack in as much as possible. Right. So it would be cut into configurations of blocks and intersecting small streets and... I lived on a little street. There was only nine houses on the little street mm. on one side and nine across from it. 
and then there would be houses lined up either side but it was nice in the early days you could play in the street without worry you know what i mean not a lot of gun violence and stuff but then it it just snapped like everything went crazy in 1968 we had the most tumultuous year in the history of the united states with the assassination of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy. And that was like this feeling with the war in Vietnam. It was just, everything was chaos. There was street rioting all over where in black neighborhoods, the National Guard had to go in and try and stop the rioting. I saw so many horrible, terrible things as a young person. It really made me jaundiced to feel for others. I knew it, you know? Especially since when I was seven years old, I got attacked by a man in my neighborhood and he beat my head and raped me. And you knew this guy as well. Yeah, that's what made it terrifying is I seen him in fights with adults where he beat up adults. And I I, I was afraid of like the, the sheer violence that he exuded all the time. So living around not only the chaos of the United States and the interracial upheaval, I had my own little terror cell going on where every day I had to avoid him because he knew the rest of my family. He hung out with members of my family. Did, did you speak up about this? No, or, it was no. driving me nuts because... How close were you to not keeping the secret, shall we say? Oh, no, I believed him. Right. So you, there was no way you were going to tell anyone. Do you regret it in hindsight? Yeah. That was a, a long thing that I drove myself crazy over was what I felt for not telling my parents. If you think about it, once I told the lie covering up for the attack, yeah, I felt an instant bond that I couldn't break because of the threat that he would kill Jocko, my dog. Mm. I, I I really believed he was going to do it. You know what I mean? Like I, I seen him viciously attack animals, uh, other adults. Why wouldn't he? Why would he spare me, you know? So I went through this really deep thing where I found myself isolating and isolating and isolating. I didn't talk as much as I did I kept making up farciful stories to try and tell my parents and they were like what's wrong with you they mm. couldn't figure it out you know I do remember this and it's always stuck with me I told my parents when I was 24 years old sitting in a death row prison visiting room what had happened to me my mother as initially said oh thank god and i was like what she said you don't you don't get this nikki we blamed ourselves mm. it was so devastating because they couldn't just, they couldn't figure out what was going on they couldn't understand where they failed me what did they do wrong as parents that's what she said she said oh my god like all my life i've just i couldn't understand why you acted the way that you did and the violence and everything and my dad's sitting there quiet as a stone. He just wants to know the guy's name so he can go kill him. Mm. I'm like, how, oh. how did it impact you knowing that they felt that way? That's the devastation because I now realize what I did to my parents. Mm. 
And as a parent, that's the point you've lost your boy. Yeah. So you know how that would feel now. It's, yeah. Uh, I know how it would feel. Yeah, it'd be it's devastating. Just, yeah, because you, as a parent, you want to try and guide someone and teach them all of your best values and get them on board with all these cool things. What you don't want to see is an unending self-hatred, self-driven to be mean and, and vicious, just vicious. My mom actually came back to see me about six months after that visit, and she said, this is the first time you and your father, my father and her, never talked about this. And she said, you know, Nikki, me and your father drove home from that last visit, and we talked so much. Mm. And he told me things that happened, and I told him things that happened, and by the end of the ride, we felt like we let it all go. She said, I want you to know I don't blame you for not telling me it's a horrible thing for a child to have to deal with. She said, but you have to understand, a parent is stronger than a child. Yeah, definitely. So I didn't, yeah. So if I ever had a message for anyone that's been dealing with that internalization, that ha that hatred and those feelings, tell someone who's a parent. Mm they are meant to be there for that yeah and if you can't get to a parent somebody older than you who's been through it will definitely guide you yeah it's it's funny how the only regret i ever truly carried in my life was i didn't tell my parents sooner what happened to me because mm -hmm. of the devastation i was causing them with my lie i never even realized so do you think um a lie is, is sometimes justified or it's never justified that's a semantical question that can get <laughs> us in trouble, but if it's, all right, so to quantify it, if it's driven by good, yes. Who cares that NORAD turns over its entire system so that children around the world can track Santa Claus? My children love doing that. Yeah, Man, when they that, were yeah. getting, they would be online and they're watching, he's getting mm. over America. That's a good lie. Mm. It gives children that beautiful, Thing, right but I've learned to deal with some really difficult things about the lies that I told and I openly punished myself or accepted punishment I should say for the lies that I did tell the trouble is a lie lays on a lie doesn't it and then you have to as a liar as, as, as far as I can see it, you have to start believing in the lies you're telling and that's weaving a, a false life for yourself. Yeah, the path. So a pathological liar can pull that off, but most people can't. Mm. I've I've realized that a lot of things that we lie about, we unintentionally lie about, or we've misconstrued things to believe that's true. And that's a that's a dangerous one. I've had, and we've all had, an argument with someone, and them retelling the argument was totally different than our version. Mm. So which is the truth, the way we remember it or they, they said it. So I realize there's a really deep thing that I'm dealing with, especially now. I'm having cognitive issues. I've taken a lot of beatings. I had to fight other men while sitting on death row for the amusement of the officers, mm -hmm. right? And I started thinking about it. 
I took some really bad beatings and I can see recently I had someone I hadn't been around for a few years come back into their life and they noticed the differences in me and it made me aware of it. So I'm really fascinated by all this because this all started for me to come back to England in January of this year when I tested myself by going to Los Angeles and doing the Soft White Underbelly podcast. I wanted to see if I had the lucidity, the ability, and coherent... Mm. Well, want... just the recall as well, to be honest, because you've got so many stories in there. Yeah. Do you think part of that could be just aging? Because as you get older, of course, your cognitive ability will degrade a little bit. No, I, I flipped the car over in January of 22. And... I that was rem- pretty messy, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't remember being upside down. I told my boy Jason Daly in Los Angeles later that night, I said, Jason, Mango was just right there. And he's going like, Nick, and like, how'd you get out of the car? I was like, oh, shit. I was like, I don't remember that part. And he's like, why aren't you freaking out? I was like, all right. Like the first time I got stabbed, I freaked out. Like the eighth time I almost got killed, I freaked out still. But this is like the 12th time I've almost died. I said, I can't get that my emotional over it anymore. He's like, you can't be blasé about it. I said, no, Jason, it's like, I think I got an allergy. I, I'm allergic to death. <laughs> <laughs> I can't die, yeah, man. a cat with nine lives. Are you ready to die? Are you scared of dying? I have no fears. All right, so if I believe that I'm exactly where I'm at in life based on the dreams that I'm being shown and all of my beliefs, then I can't have any fears. And di- dying's the one thing that we're all afraid of, right? But I can't fear it. Why? What Look, do you believe happens when you die? Because I imagine you've had a lot of time to I already to told think you the it. answer, but you don't hear me. E equals MC squared, right? Right. So My energy is going somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't need to fight about that answer. All I need to do is make sure that the energy that's in me now is pliable and kind and soft and sweet. So I don't damage it anymore because I don't want to do that again. So do you think that energy is going to be conscious and you'll know that you're you still or it's just going to flow to different places? Does it matter? I <laughs> guess that's the, that's the right. question. A lot of people what No, but what should matter to you from this moment on? What is your legacy? Mm. What will people say about you in your passing? You see, I've already achieved immortality I'm a published author, and as long as books survive, my words will be written just like the subtlety of Kierkegaard. Like, the beauty is, if you take yourself seriously, you can leave an impact on others around you or those close by. It wasn't until I had everything taken from me and I was living in the woods that I started to really get humble again. These last three years have taught me so much. So like I said in January, I wanted to see if I still had the lucidity to go and do what I'm best at. I know in the preceding months, I had to go through a lot to get to this moment, but I bet you before the end of this year, I'll reach another 100 million people. I've already reached 160 million, but I'm gonna reach another 100 million people in a different way 
with my voice, not on someone's podcast, but I'm going to go back to speaking. There's this thing that happens. You're in the room with me right now and you can feel it. There's no possible way to translate this over the internet. I get that now. I've had people, once they recognized things that I was saying to them and who I was, they literally were jumping with their hands clapping in a room in front of me. Couldn't believe it. I heard you talking to um, Bob Menery about doing a one-man play. Are you still thinking about doing that? Yeah, I already have. Yeah. Um, my my wonderful ability to, to find forgiveness has allowed David Sinkton and I, there's a stage play being developed right now in New York City, but I won't be part of that. But I want to go on the journey. I want to go on stage and for 90 minutes I want to go on a journey with people and feel their tears and laughter at the end because it invigorates me it makes me have this thing where flames are feeling like they're shooting out of my arms I can't explain it my friend said that the Japanese have a description for it all I know is I have an enormous amount of talent brought to me by pain and suffering and the only way I can share it is by going on stage. The other dream that I have, a really cool one. I want to get a food truck and I want to go around England making the best Philly cheesesteaks you ever had melt in your mouth, badass. And I already worked it out since I've been in the food industry. I'm driving from Peterborough down to Reading back and forth and I stop for a BAP. A full breakfast BAP has per capita ingredients the same as a cheesesteak but the BAP sells for 5 pounds and a cheesesteak's 12 pounds same price to make each one mm. 7 pound More increase margin. Yeah. plus when you make them the way I make them people will line up outside the truck so if you were spending your time doing that dream versus the one on stage talking to people do you feel like you'll be wasting your time because you're not sharing your message no because everybody I feed I learned this from learn, uh, uh, during the, and after the pandemic when I got jobs working in restaurants. I love to make food and people have come back and gave me so much praise because they felt the love. I think that's what's about grandma stew. Yeah, the love. Of the energy grand. put into the food making. Plus, do you know how many lives I could change on the roadside? So do you think you could have a bigger impact on someone's life if you're talking to them one-to-one -one versus... A big crowd like do you measure impact by the number of people you you touch no or how much you touch them right so i was telling your father this today every day of my life i get a brilliant message from someone around the world telling me how much i've changed their lives gotten them not to kill themselves and stuff so i'll have that but what i need mentally i don't I don't want this thing to win. I want to get up in the morning and have a purpose. And right now I'm doing uh, handball and like hard labor, you know, but I'm getting fit again. I love that. But I want to make a connection with someone. They roll up to this truck that all they know is it's Philly cheesesteak. Oh, I'm getting a cheesesteak. And the next thing you know, there's tears and laughter because they let go of something they were going to go and do. I love it. I No, I, I could smash it out. I already worked out all the properties of it. It's just, a, it's just a, that would be my happiest dream because then I wouldn't have to perform to make the connection with people. So 
I did all the prerequisite things. I wrote two brand new TV shows. I have two stage plays I've written. I've wrote a TV series that's badass, man. And I'm making a documentary I shared with your dad about yeah. my friend with cancer that's going to change the lives of millions of people worldwide. I know that if I'm going to have my dream of being somewhere in England or Ireland or Scotland or Wales, I want to roll around and make cheesesteaks and make people happy, and I don't have to be tied to the internet. Why England? Sorry to cut you off, but why right. specifically England or Scotland and not the US? Oh, all right. First and foremost, my grandmother, Hattie Shaw, came uh, uh, from Ireland. My grandfather is English. My grandparents on my father's side, my grandfather uh, was Russian, and my grandmother was Ukrainian. So... I had this feeling all along that I had to come back to the UK. I came here in 2004 and addressed Parliament. I had a distinct honor of being invited to speak to a combined session of the lower house. And you're thinking, this is no big deal, but I was only 10 months out of death row. I walked around and I saw the difference from where I was in Philadelphia, where there was 500 murders a year to this country as a dream blessing. And I just couldn't get enough of it. To have articulation of language that was an effort to speak beautifully around other people who were speaking lovely, I was like, this is so much better. So you have to understand, to come out of the ghetto where I lived, to achieve anything was a rarity, but to achieve a, a, an ability to live somewhere else was an even bigger rarity because you'd never shake off that stigma of Philadelphia, you know? Do you think you were born in the wrong country? No, I was born in the right country, and I believe in everything so much. I believe that I was given an opportunity in life to achieve one of the greatest successes ever. I think I'm going to be the only person ever to live with CTE brain injury long-term with cognitive function so that my brain could be studied and neuroplasticity can be taught to people with brain injuries to keep them from degradating their brain. I think I need to set the bar to help people struggling with faculty um, deterioration and degradation of their thoughts and negative thoughts. Look, if I can make it despite having the physical trauma and the past personal traumas that I've gone through, I think I could set a high bar for them to work and look at what I did. I shouldn't be functioning. I really mean this. I've never had one psychiatric counseling session since my release. Why would I need that? Is this um, way of dealing with it, the, the kindness approach that you've got on, on your shirt? Yeah, so after uh, Jamie Lee died in 2016, um, I felt like I had to try and say something about what I believed in that was keeping me sane. I really did believe that after meeting Robin Sharma and understanding what neuroplasticity was, I was the epitome of it. I was doing all of those things 
that are the reward system built in for our brain to get us healed. So, so to the people that don't understand what neuroplasticity neuroplasticity is, could you explain a little bit about it? Okay. Your brain has a built-in Pavlov's dog reward system. You smell popcorn, your mouth waters. Mm. It's intrinsic behavior tied to the nuances of erasing PTSD. If I work in an environment in which my job is to smile and greet people and I get into it, all day long I'm erasing the thoughts about my sister sleeping with my husband. My cousin's not doing drugs again, is she? No, because I'm smiling. and So it's an erasure of that way. But if you, ha if you have a dedicated thought process about it and an understanding of it, it's the basis of your charm and charisma. The reason that I can go into a room and harness the energy of others is I'm exuding so much charm because years of practicing this has allowed me that grace. So it's one part performance, it's one part don't care about the response, and one part is the reward. I'll give you an example. As I was waiting to come here, I was by the seaside, I deliberately said hello to four different people. Only one of them didn't say hello, good morning back to me. But my brain didn't know the difference because I didn't allow it. You get it? Yeah, so it doesn't matter what the response is from the outside world. Right, you're if you're trying to way. heal, don't worry about someone not liking your smile. Mm. If someone doesn't return your smile, my mom had a great saying. When we were in court one time and everyone's sneering at her and like, you mm. know what I mean? I said, Mom, why don't you give him the look? She goes, oh, no, I have a, a very appealing face. Why would I make myself ugly for someone else? I was like, yes. Yeah, and it's thinking about that that's their stuff, you know, that they might not necessarily be in the right mind mentally themselves. Well, they, may have, it, they may have more troubles than you have yourself. True. And, you know, you can yeah. feel for that, can't you, as well, I often think. Yeah, I always had to learn that lesson while being tortured. That was the hardest lesson that you could ever imagine was learning how to have empathy for a prison guard who kicked your food into the pie hole every day. Mm. So let's uh, let's wind it back a little bit to, um, obviously we've spoken about death row. What we haven't spoken about is how you ended up on death row. And uh, and, and the moments that led up to the yeah, arrest, exactly. I think. Let's, yeah. let's go there. Okay, so... My reaction to being sexually assaulted and raped in the age of seven was to become an alcoholic drug addict. How soon did that happen? I mean, we talk really to Ten. very young. Yeah, okay. yeah, I remember. We were clever kids. You know, we used to go down to the corner store and order the cigarettes that our parents smoked so we'd get away with buying the cigarettes. Mm. They thought we were buying cigarettes for our kid, you know, our parents. And, uh, it was always the family parties where there was so much beer going on and the adults were unattentive. You got plenty of beer. And it started off just drinking half beers. Adult puts the half beer down, you just go out and grab yeah. it, grab it. So we were good at snatching beers like that. And in the 70s, everything was experimental for teenagers, especially with drugs. I mean, in America, it just went wild. We had 
every other area was known for some form of drugs. Uh, the Warlocks motorcycle gang was on the street corner of Elmwood Avenue, and I went to grade school with the president's son. When I went to his house, there would be large metal trays of methamphetamine there. I remember getting my first teaspoon of methamphetamine from him when I was 13 years old. And I was so happy because I only paid $5 because his son was my best buddy. Yeah. Hooked. Hooked on the first go. So what's the, the feeling of taking that? Like, what does it do to you? Methamphetamine was a, originally created by the ultra-rich to be infused with vitamin B in high concentrations, so it would be 10% methamphetamine to 90% B12, and they'd give you a super jab, mm. and for the rest of the day, you were pumping, weren't like, you? Like a vitamin of some kind, yeah. Well, pure vitamin B12 mm. is a super drug. It is really good for you. The, back in the day, rich people would go to the doctors and get a jab full of B12. Is B12 feeling, what's in red meat, or is that different? No, B12 is what's in bee pollen and, and really right, good okay. ultra-high vitamins. Right. So they came up with this, and Hitler used it for his generals and everything. And methamphetamine and amphetamines in general are meant to make you very hyper. Everything is fast, 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 mm. fast, fast. When you have a brain injury and you have aphasia, like I did from the beating I took from the guy that raped me, I went into this alternate reality. There's a strange thing that happens to a lot of people that have mental disorders and they're on methamphetamine. They actually get caught into a realm of reality that's real to them. And was that a good reality or a bad one? Oh no, it's always bad because of auditory hallucinations. Um, by the time I was 18 years old, I used to have to shower with a pistol. Just because you're, you're so worried. You I had, didn't know what reality you're in. Yeah, all right. Well, there was two factors to it, too. So one of them was I would take heavy sedatives to crash, but I would also become violent on them. They were, used to be called gladiator pills called 2 and all and second all And I would beat people up, and I wouldn't remember it. And then the next day or something, I would wake up all covered in blood or something, and I wouldn't understand what happened. And then you don't know who's coming for you, which is why. And then I don't know who's after me, so I have to protect myself. And I wouldn't trust that I wasn't hearing voices or people coming up the steps while I was showering. So I always put a plastic bag over a pistol and put it under my armpit while I was showering in my house with the doors locked. That's quite an upbringing, isn't that? That's crazy, isn't it? So I saw my first homicides at age 13. It was a different world, man. Yeah, I can't even imagine that. So obviously this led on to um, the incident uh, prior to the allegation of the rape. Right. So 19 years old, I confront my attacker finally. And I have a meltdown moment over it because I realized I made myself him. I was so aggressive and nasty. I was everything he was. Unfortunately for him, he was only five foot ten. And I could have beat the hell out of him, but instead, I was so disgusted by what I was seeing in front of me, it came like an epiphany, and I ran. And I actually left Philadelphia, I went to Florida, I did a bunch of drugs, 
and I blew out a hotel in uh, Fort Lauderdale and threw everything out the window and all that stuff. And I got put in a mental institution. And it was there that I got treated and diagnosed for the first time with aphasia. So I spent eight months in a mental institution. So, so what is aphasia? Aphasia is either genetic or blunt force trauma to the brain. You can have mild forms of aphasia such as stuttering, uh, incapac uh, an inability to track statements made to you. And then if you ever uh, speak to someone, they say, slow down, slow down. I didn't catch that last bit. <laughs> oh, not I, think that, I think that's because he's getting older. <laughs> yeah. It's a mild form of aphasia. So what it is is just that either the cognitive functions that are working didn't catch up in time or they're speeding too much and you stutter. Mm. A stutter is someone very, very highly intelligent. You know that, right? Mm. I didn't know that, actually. Most people who stutter have a high, high IQ. They're trying to get everything out but quicker they don't than they can. Because their mind's working yeah. faster no, than their mouth. Or? Mm. Yeah, their mouth and their ability to slow down, like I'm doing now, aren't built in. It is an act of really patient working. It took me years. So we'll get to that. But I'm 19 years old. I'm living in Philadelphia in 1981, and I'm sober. I just got out of the hospital. I got a girlfriend. I got a job. I'm really feeling good about everything, right? Then I started hanging out with my boy, and he had meth and it was pink, and it was delicious. I could smell it through the bag. It was just driving me crazy, and I had no willpower. Next thing you know, I'm high. I'm fighting in the house. My parents are disgusted by me. They want me out again. They don't want me around. They can't stand me. It's you again, breaking their hearts. So Terry doesn't want to be with me, the girl I was with. She breaks up with me. I go down to her work to see her on December 4th, and the cops pulled me over and beat me all up, mashed my mouth all up and everything. So now I got to sit in my parents' house in my, ba in my bedroom for the next 10 days nursing my mouth that's all mashed up. Can't go out partying, can't do nothing, got no money. And I'm sipping beer just to keep the um, cauterizing with the alcohol to keep my mouth healing. <sighs> December 19th. Almost 10 days after that beat, and I went out again, stole a car, trying to get money, ended up with my friend Eddie, got high with him, went to a bar, got all drunk, dropped Eddie off, then I was going out to my sister's house in Delaware County, and I got pulled over for going through a stop sign. It changed my life just like that. The cop this time ain't chasing me. I ain't getting out of the car. I'm terrified. I can't move. And the aphasia that I described, mine is so full on that when I get scared, I can't see out of my left eye and I can't understand language that's being shouted at me or talked to me. Only snippets come back and forth. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you'll have a memory of this, but it'll be blurred and it's crazy. It's really hard to deal with. I get attacked by that a lot, but it doesn't matter. Officer Benjamin Wright pulls me out of the car, immediately puts his forearm against my throat, starts pushing backwards, and my head goes back. I can't breathe. So what, he's put his hand through the window? No, he pulls me out of the car because okay. I ain't responding. Mm. When he gets me out, he does that thing where he's like, what? Boom. 
and my head's back on the car. So you don't know what's happening. Are yet. you yeah. sober at this point? No. You're, you're high at the time. I'm high. I'm also in fear because I just got that beaten. Mm. And this aphasia is making me so crazy. I'm literally only seeing so much. When he puts his hand back there and starts pushing, I went, boom, and just whipped his arm off like nothing. He went flying backwards. Then he went for the stick, and I was like, no. And I took the stick right off of him like he didn't even have control over it. He was like, whoa. So then you're he, just acting on impulse at the moment. No, you don't and know adrenaline, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm just off the rails with these drugs. Like, I'm 6'2", you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm not a little boy. I was really pumped back then pulled that gun and as soon as i saw that i was like <gasps> so i reached out and i'll never forget it man i when i grabbed his hand and pushed the gun backwards that's when it went off and that's what really stopped everything and the bullet didn't hit anything no it went into the ground luckily but he really knew right then everything that had just gone a ton times worse in right? your opinion if you didn't grab that gun were you shot would your life have ended then if you didn't grab that gun? I knew he was going to hit me with the stick, so I I knew he was going to point the gun at me at the minimum, and I wasn't I, I wasn't sure, but you know, no one's ever asked me that, man. That's crazy. Yeah, it I could just all stopped at that moment, couldn't it? I know. And if he did shoot you, would he have got away with that? Yeah, because he's taken his weapon already off him, you know, so he's hostile. Yeah, yeah, and I got no version to tell, and he doesn't have to make up a big story. No cameras. Damn, boy, that's crazy, because I never really even was thinking about any of that. All I did was the instinct thing. Like, I mean, you, in the crowds, man, you see the gun, you grab the arm, you don't, you don't fear, you don't run. You never run from a knife, and you don't run from a gun. They're going to get you in the back. So what happened after the, the gun went off? Did did he then incarcerate you? Yeah, so he gets control of the uh, gun by whipping it back, sticks it right up under my chin, starts screaming at me, and he puts me in the car. And I, I expected to go to jail. You know, I, I knew I messed up. I was okay with that. I, I was, a, you know, a criminal. But he sat there a long time, man. And then he was thinking about it. You could see it, you know, like what he was going to say. And I thought he was just going to like, hey, come on, guys, get down here. I got this guy. And then he's all drunk or whatever. Nope. He started his little repertoire, didn't he? He was sitting there rehearsing it. That's what I didn't yeah. get. Really? Yeah, so because he... it to himself before he, he called yeah, it Yeah, because in. then it, it's just exactly what he did. He goes... Shots fired! Shots fired! Help! Oh! Oh! Help! He's out! Oh! Help! I'm on the road mm. where we're at. Huh? Officer assist! Shots fired! Help! Help! Clicks it. Mm. And he looks back and his head's like that. I'm like, oh fuck! Oh my god! So like, he's probably so pissed off at what happened that he's, yeah, because he's the paperwork alone for mm. the bullet discharge and all that. Yeah. Also, they love their plus, power, don't they? All right. Plus. Benny only got the job because his dad was the mayor of Chester. Yeah. Benny got out of the Vietnam War and he was a little bit whiffy in the head. You know, the, the guy you don't really want on the force, but his dad's the mayor. Benny decided he had his big glorious moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because look at the story he told. He said, he's followed me down the road when I did a soft roll through a stop sign. Meaning, I came to the stop sign, slowed, but proceeded. 
He said he pulled over after the junction behind me about 30 feet and that I immediately jumped out of my car and ran back to him, opened the door up, and then punched him in his face, broke his eyeglasses. While he couldn't see, I took his firearm from him, put it to his head, and drug him out of the car and was then dragging him to my car, which was a two-door Camaro, to put him in my car somehow so I could kidnap him. When he said, when I opened the door, when he said, when Yaris opened the door of the Camaro, that's when my training kicked in and I overpowered him and took the weapon from him. When you went across the stop sign, was it actually dangerous when you went across? Or no, it's middle of the night. No, you have to stop I, th- at a US stop that's sign. That's what though. I you didn't... Have, yeah. The yeah. wheels have to stop, don't yeah, they? Yeah, you have to you come to a roll. full stop. See, that's different from obviously roundabouts yes. in the UK where yes. you can let yes. it yes. flow. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's no, I have crazy. said that to you in the States. When you see it's an octagonal stop, you right. must literally... Come to a regardless, stop, check stop. all sides and then go. And it says stop for all way. Yeah. That means all four sides will stop. Yeah. Yeah, you would have thought that's a silly way to do so, it. Because you know, it's a great way to pull someone over. Yeah, They call it the Philly roll. We get up to the stop sign. We go down to two miles an hour. Then we just keep going. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Look, it was a habit of mine. Mm-hmm. I still do it at times. You know. And feel- so do you think he wanted to pull you over anyway? Yeah. Because he's looking a, for someone. Look, I had a 1973 orange Camaro with music that was blasting so loud you heard it coming down the street. Benny was going to pull me over no matter what. But, man, I think about it now. Like, the thing that was just bothering me was when we went to court, he kept on embellishing, and I was getting more and more upset. My lawyer said, good, you know, don't worry about it. Let him go. Yeah, but I was like, why are you letting him do this? At first version was... He saw me walking towards him, and then I sprinted at the mm. last. Like he was making all these variations of his story and all that. And I'm like, that was a lie. Like he didn't say, you know. But your lawyer, I'm knew, your lawyer knew he was digging his own hole. Though. Yeah, because the more he embellished, the more he couldn't come back from one thing. Exactly. Mm. And he had, he had no, no photos, did he, of you hitting He had no physical just injuries. A, just a little cut on so, his hand on it or something. Yeah, if you had left it at that and didn't do what I'm sure we're about to talk about, then it probably would have been fine. You would have right. got off and. You know, not gone but to the prison. fear right. of going but, to prison. So I here I am. Yeah. Before I even get to any of these chances to prove my innocence. Yeah. I go from that night and that officer stopping me in a stolen car to sitting in the Delaware County prison in solitary confinement with no drug treatment. And I was so embarrassed, I actually gave a false name because I didn't want my parents to ruin Christmas by knowing I was arrested. So I gave him the name Nicholas Pollock. And I sat there and went to sleep. And I figured, just give up, you know? And I kept waking up. And there would be new food trays there, but I wasn't eating anything. And I kept just getting sick and vomiting and vomiting and vomiting and shit myself. It was horrible. Just because you're going through the withdrawal process. Yeah, because yeah. the worst thing you can go through is a um, amphetamine barbiturate com- combination withdrawal. The nerves in your body feel like they're being ripped out of your skin, man. Barbiturates are a hard addiction to kick. Uh, so you're not in your right mind and you're thinking, no, and I'm desperate. Oh, this, this is the mayor's son. He's just going to stick it to you as much as possible. Right, so... 
How um, did you get? Because you read a newspaper, didn't you? From what? So how did you get that? I woke up and there was a, a newspaper from the days before I even got arrested. It was the December fifteenth newspaper from Delaware County, Pennsylvania, and the front cover was actually missing. It was only page three that was visible, but. You know what it's like when you go into Lou. You're going to read that yeah. headline over and over, or that saying on the wall over and over. We can't help it, right? I kept reading it. It's like, uh, can you help us? Missing mom found dead. Police uh, unable to solve mystery. At first, it just was nothing. But the more I kept thinking about this cop's lie and how everything's got to be a lie and lie, lie. And then I'm like, well, what if I made up a lie and I made up a lie and I got out of this then? And I started thinking I could play their game. The terrible thing was they actually convinced me that my silly ass story that a guy that I knew who had robbed me in the neighborhood and tried to kill me had done the murder. And that he had told me about it and they were going to, actually go and talk to Officer Benjamin Wright right in front of me and have a conversation. And he's on the phone telling him, all right, okay, well, if that's the case, I'm going to withdraw my charges down to simple resisting arrest. He can go back to Philadelphia for possession of the stolen car, but we'll only prosecute him for resisting arrest, and he can go on his way. Did you feel bad about um, kind of pinning the murder on this other guy? No, so I didn't feel anything other than... I'm going to spend the rest of my life in here for something I didn't do because this cop's lying on me and whatever I got to do, I'll, I'll scratch my way out of here. I was that mentally desperate and degraded from the life that I had. I didn't care. I would have told any lie to get out of there. In fact, when they found out I was lying, I was relieved. I was like, thank God, because you know the call that you had with an officer, right? And he said, this is all bullshit and that you're going to give me a break. He said, well, that never happened. I was like, no, they're, but you see. But then I said, yeah. I said, but it doesn't matter. Don't you see? It's true. I didn't do it. He says, we don't give a fuck if you did it. We don't care about Officer Benjamin, right? We know that you killed Mrs. Craig because you got some problems in your head, don't you, Nick? And I was like, what? They said, oh, yeah, we went through your childhood records. Well, you were put in ultraviolet uh, juvenile offender schools and look at all the things that you did as a boy you've been waiting to kill somebody we, we understand we understand that you can't come right to us and tell us you had to make the story up so you could finally confess i was like no man would you got this all wrong look I thought that the guy I made the story up about was dead. I thought no one would be hurt by my lie. I thought I was just trying to get out of these charges, you know? They said, no, that's okay, Nick. We talked to your girlfriend. We know that you got problems. We want you to know she was a good lay. And I'm like, what are you saying? And then they were getting me upset, and I'm saying all these stupid things, ain't I? You can imagine because it's such a high-profile case, they were just looking to close it as soon as possible. And if you fit the bill... And they were going to try and pin it on you. They're almost like manipulating you into believing that you did it. But so you're now, you know, you've got a murder charge that you're fighting. But before that, the charges that you were trying to get out of, how severe are these charges? What were you actually facing that you were trying to get out of? I was of? initially arrested for the kidnapping, armed robbery, aggravated assault, and attempted murder of Officer Benjamin Wright. 
facing life imprisonment. To serious charges. Very serious charges. I was never going to get out again. And then I added to it with my own stupid lie. I was then charged with the rape, kidnapping, robbery, and murder of a woman I never met based on a story out of a newspaper I made up. How could they possibly charge you with that without any evidence? So that that's what I can't understand. You know? This is where they decided to make um, an example of me. After te- interrogating me all day, they brought me back to the prison and the lead detective, Randy Martin, gives me a hug right in front of the pagan motorcyclists who are being processed into the jail and says, good job, Nick. We're going to go kick some doors in. I'm like, fuck, what? There's the setup. So they know what's going to happen now. I go back into my cell the next day, cup of bleach with urine in it, thrown in my face. A guy sharpened broom tries to poke my eye out. Attack after attack after attack. I had to stand there the first day with my mattress against the door to stop them from throwing feces and stuff in my cell, man. They thought I was an informant mm. that had just been out with the police giving them tips. So I hung myself. I couldn't take it no more. The the truth is, the one leader of the gang kept yelling that they were going to go to my house and murder my family, man. If I didn't kill myself, they said they were going to get my mom. So I did. And they cut me down. The guard said I wasn't allowed to kill myself because I can't cheat the state out of my punishment. And um, they put me in a hospital wing with my mom, and it was really ignorant because these inmates were coming up there to get their medications while she was visiting me, and they're grabbing their granted genitalia, and they're telling her to do oral sex on me and shit. She leaned over. She said, Nick, I don't know what you're going through, but do me a favor. Don't hurt yourself. If everybody in the world's trying to kill you, don't do that. So I made her a promise I was going to hang on for that moment. I couldn't tell her anything, really. She was really not prepared for any of this. So I went back to the block, and they put me in the very first cell next to the guard's cage. And then they put Charles Michael Catalino in the cell next to me. I don't even know the guy. And he's in there for burglarizing the prosecutor's home and abusing the prosecutor's pets and everything during the robbery. And he's been convicted by a jury. And then they move him out the next day. And I'm like, damn, what the hell was that all about? Then they moved me out of the Delaware County Jail and put me out in the Chester County Jail. I don't have no charges in this county. I don't even know why I'm out there. So you can tell something's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, Charles made a statement, said that I confessed to him. And is oh, this right. for the, the rape and murder? So, so all of this has happened, everything that you just mentioned you've experienced, and you haven't even been tried for the murder yet. This is I haven't even been tried the... I haven't even been tried with my original charges yet either. So we haven't even got started yet and nope. all of this. So I'm sitting there now, they bring me back and they charge me with the rape, kidnap and, and murder of Linda May Craig. I'm like, What are you doing? They say, Well, the murderer had B positive blood. And so do you. And I said, well, what's that mean? He said, well, only 15% of the white male population has B-positive blood. That means you did it. 
we're convinced now. That's as close as I could get back then. Yeah, in 1982, that was mm. it. So, yeah, but surely they they would need some more evidence than that. Well, they had, like they had a confession, didn't they, from the guy really next a to him? Confession, yeah. but, but what they had in form of evidence that sealed my fate were photographs. And what were the photographs of? They brought Mr. Craig in to testify at the trial and they showed him a portrait style photograph of his missus and he identified her. Then they showed her on the autopsy table with six stab wounds. Then they showed this picture. On the morning of December 16, 1981, two boys walking through the woods behind a church in Trainer, Pennsylvania, came upon what they thought was a mannequin covered in snow. One of the children walked over and tried to kick the snow away from the mannequin's face to see if it was a boy or a, a female mannequin, only to find Mrs. Craig laying there. Their footsteps around the body were black. The photograph was black and white, so you couldn't see red. But you could see the children, as they ran away from the figure, ran in opposite arcing patterns and it looked for all the world like a angel laying in the snow and the jury looked at those photographs and they never again looked at me and then the bolt of lightning hit the courthouse and knocked all the power out you can't make it up man mm -hmm. they've used emotion and won the jury and yeah, they the used all that well. horrible thing for the jury to not be able to look at me because of the fear of what their children went through. And the crazy thing is, I was at a court proceeding years later when I filed a civil action against Delaware County, and one of the boys wrote to me and said he was okay and wanted me to know that he didn't have any feelings about me, that he was okay with me being free, and he wished me a happy life. Wow. How did that make you feel? Relieved because I was the only person in that cell fighting for the victim. I wasn't fighting for me as much as I was trying to prove that she needed help too. When I first got out of prison, I went and got a bullhorn. I went back to the courthouse, didn't I? There's a movie on Showtime Network in America called After Innocence. And... I went and got myself a bullhorn and I went back to Delaware County and I started fighting for Mrs. Craig. They didn't want to catch her killer. Yeah, you know, that's the biggest all insult. All the time that you're in jail, like they're not going to find anyone else, are they? So, Since the reinstatement of the death penalty in America, there have been as many exonerations as there have been executions. Really? Yep. So they're obviously not getting it right, are they? No, they're not. And I always think of it in this way. We've had thousands of exonerations, right? That means there's thousands of victims that never got justice. I'm not talking about the injustice mm. done to the person. Mm. Mrs. Craig's killer still not found. He might, be, he might be doing time somewhere else for something else. No, he can't. No? Because his DNA no profile's DNA. in the system. Right. But they can't match it. So, I always have this thing where I keep thinking about 
Craig family hates me to this day and thinks I somehow still have something to do with their loved one's death. And I'm going to have to ride this out for however long I can because it used to drive me crazy. I used to call the Delaware County District Attorney every year and find out what's going on with the DNA. I'm just going to let it play out because I can't do anything about it. Mm. But I would love to see the victim get justice, not me. I don't need them to find anything. I've been out here 19 years now, haven't I? It would be just nice for the family to get some closure. If the killer now got booked for some sort of, you know, petty crime and fingerprints were taken, DNA was taken, would they then be able to connect the dots and he would be tried for that murder? Not only that, but the familiar DNA now, this is how they caught the Golden State Killer. 35 years ago, he was out there killing all these people and they got his DNA from family members who are doing genealogy tests. So my hope was that the Delaware County authorities would use the same systems to try and catch the car, the person responsible. I don't know, I just... I mean, I, the truth be told, the person that committed that crime could have been, let's say, for example, 50 years old when he committed that crime. It's true. He may no longer be on this planet. I know. I used to get taunting letters from the Chicago area telling me it was him. And what, one of the things that always bothered me was when the DNA was finally tested, one of the first two results from the killer's gloves that were left inside the victim's automobile was from a second female from the epilel cells of her vaginal area. So she could have been a second victim that he murdered. And they never found never it. And they never, hmm. see what I mean? That really, oh. And that came, I, I got those results in 2003. I was furious. I know what they said. Well, we didn't introduce those gloves at your trial because we hid them from you. I was like, is that really your answer? Your excusatory, blase dismissal of the actual reality of what you're seeing before you? I'm surprised that's legal. You know, I thought maybe they'd have to put over all the evidence they've got to the other side and then you get a chance to look all of it but is that just not but how it works they have to put it over but it has to be declared evidence doesn't it if they don't right. declare yeah. it so if they don't they, want to enter it as no. evidence because the prosecutors are only people as well and if they decide I know this person did it I want to get this guy if a piece of evidence is counterintuitive then they're just not going to exactly use it exactly right because mm. on point those gloves wouldn't have fit me. Exactly, yeah. I mm. was shooting drugs and my hands were swollen. Mm. They were a men's medium winter gloves. Nowhere near would have fit my hands. Mm. It's strange. I kept thinking for years, see, this isn't all of it. In 1988, I was the first man in the United States to seek DNA testing to prove my innocence. Right then and there, there's no trial, passion, right? I'm on death row. But yet, that's when they started to try and murder me for 15 years. They destroyed all the autopsy material in one weekend. Look, man, I'm on the phone on a Friday with my lawyer, and he's like, the coroner's impressed. You're going to be the first man in history proven innocent. He's on board with getting this DNA testing done. He's already looked it all over. It's all good with him. I need to speak to your lieutenant so I can speak to you Monday. I got the lieutenant on the phone. Man, that was the best weekend. So 
I was like, yeah. Monday morning, I found out, oh no, all the evidence from your homicide trials missing or destroyed. Oops, it's over. No. I mean, it's one thing being on death row for that long, but having those stints of, of hope and then it being taken away again. I and then I find totally... the evidence again because I went through my trial transcripts and in the sidebar notes, you're not present when the lawyers gather with the judge up next to the podium. You're sitting at the defendant's chair. Mm. All those sidebar notes aren't privy to you until you get your transcripts later on. It was in those notes that I found out Dr. Muhammad Tahir from National Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, uh, his laboratory up there, received the DNA samples, which would be DNA, blood samples and sperm samples, prior to my trial because he found out it was B-positive blood. So, so it, yeah. yeah, I got lucky. I wrote him on my own and he said he had it. So I begged my lawyer. I really did. I said, please do me a favor. Don't tell the prosecutor I found new evidence. No, no. Good old Joe was going to tell them. So my lawyer literally told them about the evidence and they sent a detective Pfeiffer to the lab. He took the evidence and put it in his desk. This is no lie. It's in the records. He put it in his desk for the next three years, and when it was finally turned over to a laboratory, there was no visible evidence on that slide. So that was the second effort to murder me. Then my mom goes to a hearing in 1990 in Delaware County because at the end of my trial, they tried to hand her a box called Yaris, marked Yaris, and it was full of the victim's bloody clothes. She tells the story about that incident in court brings the clerk out of retirement and he says that's right it did happen he goes back and finds the box of blood but he closed that the victim wore with all the evidence and that's 1990 for the next 12 years they did their best to destroy it when i got federal court approval to ship that evidence it burst open in transit and spilled that's the third time they tried to murder me I finally had to get a lawyer to get on an airplane and fly evidence to California. And then the doctor sat on it for the next five years. My wife left me. I got sick, so sick with hepatitis C. And is this the woman that you met while you were in prison? I yeah. think we're jumping ahead a bit. Yeah. Mm. We, I think is it we Jackie? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. It doesn't matter though. All right. So. So, I mean, one thing we didn't cover is you actually got cleared of all of the charges with the police officer and everything, didn't you? So that would would have been fine. His fabrication blew his whole yeah. case away. So from when, when you were in court on trial for the murder, you know, did you have any hope at all of the fact that you would make it out? Or did you know deep down that you were screwed here and they were going to do whatever it took? How did you, you know, feel in that process? In April of 1982, I went to trial for the original charges against Officer Benjamin Wright. Yeah. My word against an officer. Slam dunk, right? I was scared. I was like, this isn't going to take long. But then a funny thing happened. I was only out of the courtroom, down the hallway, back in the cells for 15 minutes, tops. And they're bringing me right back. I was like, and the officers are laughing. Oh, we got a quick one. Man, they're getting out of here today. Like, they know juries, right? I went up there, and uh, as I was going in the door, 
the sheriff who was with the jury looked at me said you're okay he didn't say anything else just he said you're okay and let me into the courtroom never before spoke like that the jury's looking me in the eye and they're you know not guilty of all charges officer benjamin wright literally went for his gun this is in the newspaper he had to be restrained the prosecutor took the case file and threw it against the wall and started screaming at me, motherfucker, you'll never leave this county alive. Exact words. I couldn't believe this. This is actually in court filings now. I'm so beside myself because, unlike what you thought, I knew that they weren't going to let go now. You see, by the time I went to trial for the rape and murder of Mrs. Craig in June of 1982, only two months after I was acquitted, Barry Gross took over the murder prosecution. That was the prosecutor who just lost the last case, and he's getting revenge. He's making sure I can't get a hold of any of the discovery material. None of the evidence folders are being handed over. We never even knew that the killer's gloves were, were found in the car. The judge set the tone for everything. Robert F. Kelly thanked the jury for their service to the community and then told him he knew that they had the one biggest shared problem of all, their fear that they were going to miss out on the 4th of July holiday because of this trial. Hmm. And it was June 28th when they started my trial. He said, don't worry. This trial will be over by this weekend. You're all getting to go home. Thank God. Let's get this going. That's how they had that cavalier attitude about my death penalty trial at the age of 21 man mm. it's genius from them and malicious yeah they do that a lot they'll schedule a big trial right before a holiday knowing it's pressure on the jury to go on christmas or thanksgiving or whatever it's also the way that they use the kids to win the jury over you know everything about it is strategic. very clever very clever no evidence inflamed the passion of the jury it's called and they were allowed to get away with it because of one fact the photographs were in black and white. Mm. That is insidious. So would they have not been able to show the photographs if they were If they were in, in color? full color, you can't show them because blood would offend the jury. But can you not just turn it black and white, though? Like you can. No, they take the photographs of crime scene evidence, mostly back then, deliberately, in black and white for that reason. Mm. It could be shown in that austere you know moody sort of way yeah Set no the tone. It, yeah so it's it's clinical mm. it's a clinical photograph yeah. if it's black and white obviously not the case though is it no they obviously had an emotional impact. no because you can see the impact on people's minds when they want to contrive what what's really there and so, they want to go home yeah so the verdict comes the, down the verdict comes down in a boy it was really, sh it was shameless. Uh, that's a great word for this because after the courthouse got struck and they got the power back on, they finished up with the last witness. Then they all went to the wagon wheel restaurant to decide, decide my fate. They weren't sequestered in the courthouse. It was too hot because of the power being knocked out in the building. But the wagon wheel restaurant had good old steaks and all that. So, yeah, the... The jury actually got to dine and enjoy themselves while I sat in the cell and waited for them to finish with their verdict. 
They came in and they found me guilty, and then they had to go back out for another deliberation uh, service. And that is when the jury finds you guilty in America, they then have the state present the aggravating factors why you should be put to death versus the the defense tell them the mitigating factors why you shouldn't be put to death. Oh, I wasn't having that. I wasn't begging anyone for anything. My lawyer tried to put my mom on the stage and said, take her down. Why would I do this? I can't ask for mercy for something I didn't do. I don't want my mom talking about what a fucked up kid I was and why I was a, a terrible child. I didn't do it. Mm, you don't need the forgiveness. You don't need to have mercy on me. Yeah, because you'd already be acting. So like my you've done it. Yeah, so my penalty hearing only lasted 30 minutes, which was great for the jury because they had told the uh, the waiters back at the wagon wheel to hold on to their dessert orders because they had to come back and spend more time deliberating and they were going to just have it while they were It just feels a bit too casual, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, like but how they can just, just go and do that, have a steak, yeah, have their you, dessert. Every time I feel bad about it now, I feel what a waste of time because I've outlived them all now. Mm. Mm. I didn't have to have bad feelings about them. One way or the other, I was relieved of even having hatred for them because as a young, young 21-year-old kid... All these adults sentenced me to die, and now they've, I've outlived them all. I'm 62, man. So, yeah. So how did it feel leaving that courthouse and entering the prison bus for the first time and then going, going to the prison? I wasn't allowed in the local prison because I told the judge to go to hell, didn't I? He couldn't look me in the eye, though. It was driving me crazy. You're about to sentence me to death, and you can't even look me in the eye was my exact words, followed by... Well, great. Do you have anything else to add? I said, yes, sir, you can go to hell. Newspaper only said, defiant killer tells the judge to go to hell. So so you put his back up and he thought, I'm going to get you. You yeah, said I'm it quite respectfully, though. But yeah. yeah. But if you put it in print, yeah. I guess you, you yeah. can't know the time. So he had said. to back it up because he had a reputation in the county, too. So Bobby told. Yeah. Do you regret saying that? No. Because God told me to. I, I know it's crazy, but I was upstairs. I'm in the courthouse. The power's been knocked out by lightning. And I heard this thing telling me to look them in the eyes. And no one could look me in the eye. And they're about to sentence me to die. So he asked me in a, you know, a truncated way, like, well, is that a, all you have to say? I was like, no, you can go to hell. And that's when he fired me up. Well, then. I'm going to see to it that I add 60 years to the death penalty. So if you even survive being electrocuted, it went like this. Mr. Yaris, you're going to be transported to the Rockview State Penitentiary in Rockview, Pennsylvania, where 3,200 volts of electricity will course through your body to cause your death. Do you understand that? And he said, should you not be executed by the state in this manner, I am adding an additional 60 years to your sentence so that you never see the light of day again. Do you understand that? I just kept looking for him to look me in the face because the whole time he's saying it, it was like this. Mm. But you think at that moment, you can't really lose much more. Like you've, you've got the worst penalty. Well, you might have added another 100 years on. <laughs> or send you to a worse <laughs> anyway, aren't you? So. I know. <laughs> Just so, done, aren't you? So, so you're in those cells. 
And then came the biggest challenge in my life. How do I overcome the stigma of how I speak and defend myself, not only on a daily basis, but I kept thinking about this and thinking about this. They're going to put me in the yellow mama. They're going to put a sponge on my head. They're going to put a metal cap on my bald head. And they're going to fry me, man. I got two minutes, possibly three, to defend myself verbally. What am I going to do? I'm telling you, it was eating at me, man. I, how could I possibly handle Like, this is crazy. How I couldn't let myself be executed like that. Like, I kept saying... How can I let myself be killed like that? I can't die like that. I have to figure out a way so that when I die, I'm not di like this. Is, this is what drove me to become an eloquent, beautiful speaker because I was terrified I would get in the chair and blubber and blow it and what would be the point of my death if I can't speak? Do they give you that chance to speak? Is that a thing yeah, that's a part of the As a dead man's right. Right. Yeah. So I had one. Do you get a last meal as well? Is that a thing? Yeah. Yeah. yeah whatever. I you wouldn't want. take. No, I wouldn't take no crap. And the last <laughs> yeah. thing that I was driving them nuts was I refused to tell them what to do with my body. There's a form. I think it's a DC 138A form, something like that. You have to fill out a form explaining where you, what what your rights to your body, you know. So people are religious; they want their body cremated mm. or buried. I kept telling them, "Just take mine, throw it in the street when you're done with it," because I have no say. So that used to really bug them. Have you ever um, told anyone what your speech would have been in that three minutes? I, I, I did it beautifully only once when i first got out of prison i went to maine in the united states big beautiful state and um i stopped on a beautiful river on a boulder and i did it flawlessly and then burst into tears knowing that i would never be that pollyannish alive again yeah I finally let it go. It used to haunt me. All right, listen, to this would drive me crazy. I would practice this thing so much that I would wake up in absolute frustration because I was dreaming about it and got it wrong in my sleep. This became so paramount to me. Mm. I didn't want them to mock me. I don't care that you're killing This is crazy. I didn't care that I was being killed. I cared enough that I had something to say about who I was that when you take my life, I'm at peace. That's all I had. So I really, I really just wanted to learn to say something. So when I found out about the beautiful neutrino that could pass through every surface on this planet like it's not even there, that's what I was. I had learned that I'm nothing more than a neutrino. And even in their ignorance that I passed right through them without them even conceiving of what I could be, who I could be, or any of it, I still had the frame of mind to forgive them for murdering me, 
tell them who I was, and then let them do it, man. That's all I had a shot at. It was driving me nuts. How does it feel to be, you know, you're going through all this stress and it's driving you crazy, but you know that you didn't commit this crime, but nobody care. else knows that. <laughs> I know this is funny, but I didn't care. I never cared, man. I didn't care. I wasn't allowed to care that I was innocent. I had to be more violent than the, the real killers, man. It's crazy. I, well, it's like in the Shawshank Redemption, isn't it? He said, I sure wasn't a uh, a criminal before I came here. It took me to go to prison. To become, become one. Yeah. Yeah, I had to be harder than the dude that held a family hostage for fast food, man. And why was that? So I assume that this is down to the conditions because that you were facing. Because you're living with people who are looking for your weakness. Mm. I was around people that were predatory. You haven't met them. You might have seen a moment of their action. I'm talking about a serious, predatory, voracious killer. Someone who didn't mind opening up your flesh and enjoyed the blood, man. And when you're around someone like that, you can't give off a weak vibe. You have to be really aggressive and they respect you. I had a dude named Busthead, man. This guy was so notorious for hurting dudes. But as soon as I seen him, I jumped him. I didn't even have words with the guy. Right? And you know what? He respected me and he stayed away from me from then on. How did you jump him? Did you just like yeah, punch just him? Right off the bat. Yeah, as soon as they took our cuffs off and we were in a communal area going to the medical units. That was the time. Or any... Yeah, look. Whatever my legal folly was, was in a courtroom. Whatever my life was, was in a jailhouse. And I had to live in the level five. Level one is the easy one where you get to have things. Level two and three are harder. Level five is they're taking your life. And someone in there will take it for you like that. So is every single person in that jail is awaiting death? Or they ain't getting out. So max sentence or Max death. is out, yeah. And they've been violent somewhere else. And for me, there was no death row. So I got put in the unit meant to mentally break you. Huntington Prison was the place they sent you in Pennsylvania to break you. Violate the rules in this part or that part of the state. They sent you to Huntington and put you on a place called B Block that was designed to mentally break the hardest men. That's where they started death row. So when they put me in this treatment regimen with the guys they were torturing, they didn't differentiate. They didn't spare me because I wasn't uh, violent in the jails. They gave me it just as bad as the next guy, even though that wasn't part of my punishment. I would argue with them, look, I, I haven't done anything. I haven't been you know, misbehaving. I haven't hurt anyone. Why are you doing this to me? He said, it's my job. So what were some of the methods they used to you know, do all of this horrible well, stuff? Obvious, the worst one was the silence. You, you had 244 men locked up on one block and no one was allowed to speak. It's eerie when you have suppressed silence. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between meditative silence and, but when you're around suppressed silence from fear, 
there's a omnipresent emotive feeling to it it's dark and when you hear violations of it you get afraid because you know what's coming for that person so what would happen to that person if they spoke up first thing is the guard's going to run down the tier jingle jangle with his keys and start shouting from the person that's making that noise to stop he gives them two direct orders that's your first one tells them to stop they keep going that's it he then runs back up the block and he hits the bell there's a red button beside the sergeant's desk the calamity bell pop hits that they have a cert unit control extraction riot and you know it's cert c-e-r-t they put on gear that is bulletproof and and knife vest you know and all that they line up outside your door and then they come rushing in and they nail you to the floor and start beating on you and then the and how, many, how many men are we talking it's always about? a four-man team for ex four. for entry and one man waiting on the outside with a camera so they always had the guy out back with the camera four in none of them are under six foot four none of them are under 300 pounds all big guys burst in through the door get in on you suppress you beat you down then the nurse comes in and she and this is by force gives you 1000 milligrams of thorazine by forceful injection in your buttocks do you think the guards enjoyed doing this some did i can't imagine yeah them going to work every day knowing that they're going to beat people up surely if they're good people they wouldn't enjoy that depends if they feel like they're doing it for the right reason I all guess. right but Maybe they feel yeah, like they're see, doing it for the victims. Yeah, but see, you're describing it from the genteel side of the exploratory nature of it. You're not looking at it from the guy who's been sitting there watching ABC News out of Altoona, Pennsylvania, where a baby's been thrown into a microwave because of, you know what I mean? Mm. And they go in there and they deal with him. Mm. Yeah, they feel like they're, so the they're motivated yeah. to do the vengeance that they feel justified. I've been hurt more by people who called themselves religious driven Christians or whatever, more by them than anyone else. It was their disdain for what they thought I was that justified the beating they gave me. You get it? Yeah, and in a way, like keeping you quiet dehumanizes you and they, I guess they can kind of think of you as a monster rather than a human. Well, it's the same as what went on in the concentration camps in Germany. You dehumanise your population, your guards and everything will do anything, anything that's asked of them. Yeah, as long as they're not human. Yeah. How did this silence affect you? Like a big topic at the moment is, you know, young men growing as a man and, you know, becoming more intelligent, physically big, progressing their career. How did it, you know, affect you physically and I guess also intellectually? I always tell people that the worst thing was my reaction to it was I was so stupefied by my anger. I beat my head against the wall every day. And every time my head would burst open and start bleeding, they would take me out to the triage unit and patch my head up. But I was sitting in a cell 
thinking about the people laughing in my parents' face when they drugged me out of the courtroom, thinking about the trial, thinking about how nobody could look at me. I had no new sensory input. The worst thing that they could have done to me was take me directly from trial on death row and slap me into solitary confinement because I had no one to talk to about what they did to me and I wasn't allowed to talk anyway and it would drive me crazy. So I would just beat my head on the wall. I thought I was going crazy. I was so angry, I wouldn't eat. I would deliberately hurt myself by not eating and not drinking, see how long I could go. And I hated myself. The worst part of it is, I put myself on death row in the most embarrassing way I put myself on death row and I tortured myself over that. People don't know this. The reason I'm really humbled and a nice person in life, I tortured myself more than anybody could have ever hurt me. I paid for everything I ever did. I let it go that way, you know? Do you think the kindest people actually do go through a lot of trauma to reach that level of uh, kindness for others? Oh, there's a true beauty in suffering. I think, and I'll say this again, I'm so willing to believe there's something going on far more clever than me in my life. How could I be blessed with so many wonderful connections with people unless I had everything taken from me? And you know, I don't even care because I was telling your dad, I've done some of the best work I've ever done while homeless. And it's never a consideration to me. I, I've always felt like if I'm getting through to people, then this is what was needed. I wouldn't have met you if I smashed it right away. I wouldn't have made the connection with so many people, so I'm okay with this. And yes, I'm on the cusp of this great comeback story. I really am going to smash it, and I know it. Like, I have no doubt I'll raise the funding to get the documentary made about Alex's life. Not even a question. I have no doubt I'll raise the funds to get my speaking back. I'll get housing again. I'll get everything done. But I had to go through this so I could learn. And I'm okay with the learning. Everyone wants to celebrate, right? How many truly people really embrace their hurts? I think what's great is you've obviously got a purpose and you're living that purpose every day, helping these people however you can, even if your situation isn't ideal at the moment, you eventually will get there. If you help enough people, it will come back, won't it? I got this wonderful gift, you ready? One day I was so miserable, I sat down and quit. That ain't today. Mm. When you can have that in your back pocket, this is why I always tell someone who's had suicidal thoughts or bad thoughts like that in the past, how bad was that day? And they were like, oh my God, you wouldn't believe it. I say, today's <laughs> that not that day, is it? And they're like, it's not. And I say, that's what you need, a measuring stick. You need to go back. And remember what it's like that when you came out the next day, that dude next to you is going to stab you. You're going to get stabbed, but you got to fight him anyway. 
that ain't this day, man. So as long as I have that within me, I think I'm going to be okay. I'm dealing with a lot. I have brain trauma that is a real vicious thing. I noticed that while I was on my own these last couple of years, it was getting worse. I had to make an effort to change, so I did. So I came back knowing this is my salvation, this is my healing. So I'm going to figure out what it is that I need to do to keep me in contact because the whole morning I've been sitting here with you guys, my brain isn't struggling. Everything's doing what it needs to yeah, do. It seems like it's flowing. Mm. It's coming right, out and that's what I need to do. Mm. So I want to go back and do all the positive things that I can while I can and keep it going. Do you think it helps you that um, no matter how bad a day that you can possibly have now, you've always had a worse day that you can reflect on? Yeah, I think if you can come back from being um, a sexual abuse survivor and that hatred it takes to allow yourself to do what I did to myself, if you can come back from wrapping a rope around your neck and jumping off of a toilet in a cell enough to love yourself again, I think I've cracked it. I mm. think I'm okay with the sorrow factors. I'm going to have hard times in the future. People I care about, I will lose. Things that I have will be taken. That's okay with me, but I'm not going to do the thing that my mom said and join the parade. Because you can't win. When you join the parade, there's no one pulling you back from it. I have this dream. Somewhere, somehow, I'll make an impact on someone's life and they'll make a bigger impact on other lives. As long as I have that dream going, that keeps me from wanting to kill myself. Yeah, because you're having this huge ripple effect touching right. so many lives and you're not even aware of the secondary ripples that you're, you're having the impact on. And yet, in today's media, I am finding out. Mm. In, since I did Joe Rogan's podcast in 2018, this is crazy, not only have millions upon millions of people watched it, but the messages that came from it are shockingly beautiful because I didn't see it about myself. My vulnerability on that program made people trust in themselves enough to say things they couldn't otherwise share. And here I was so critical of myself. I totally thought I flubbed it. I blew well, it. This I, is what you were saying on the True Geordie podcast, weren't you? That he was saying like, well, it didn't go as well as it should have gone. And you're both, you're a great speaker and he's a great podcaster. But when I watched that, I thought it went brilliantly because it touched me. And you were, you were crying, you were emotional. And it made that story feel real. I know. And yet I get, it's crazy the attackers. I, I always love them, by the way, because I, I think it's wonderful that for the rest of my life, they'll remember me while I have no idea who they are, <laughs> you know? So if you want to really make me happy, let me know that you're going to spend the rest of your life thinking about me. Mm. Get in there. Tell your grandchildren that you hated me, <laughs> is what I say. You know what I mean? No, um, I wanted to go on Rogan and I really wanted to have a moment trying to tell people about what if and my theory about 
life and I wanted to have a chat with a mate and hang out with him. I I like what he's done in his career. I've never watched television, so I never really saw him on TV a lot. I just knew he was part of the MMA scene, you know? Um, but I felt like I had let so many people down that were depending on me to be able to pull off this message. And I was fighting with my missus, and I felt really ugly and stupid. And I guess that's the memory that drives what you feel about things. Whereas I've gotten people that have written me and said, you know, I just saw that clip of Joe Rogan again. I can't believe what you've done to my life. And I need to shut my mouth. Yeah, You could tell it. it was real and natural. Because mm. even Joe, you could tell he was struggling to handle, know, handle the conversation. <laughs> but that just made it more real. I know. I know. I get it. Look, I, I don't, I don't really know the man, but if I ever sat down in the studio again, it would not be what it was, and I don't need to go back and do it anyway because I would rather be on the Strike It Big podcast today, doing this with people who made the effort to learn as much as possible. I, like I fucking love you guys for doing this. You made the effort for me. That's rare. I don't get this grace. I'm not used to this. Yeah, I mean, if we invite someone on the podcast, we will put in the hours to understand that person because before we, we sit down and talk to them. We want to talk to people that are interesting because we're interested in them. Right. And that interest I've never had brought this. to everyone. Yeah, but I didn't have it like this. Not that feeling, you know? For people that haven't seen it, what exactly is it that you're talking about? You know, Joe found it hard to navigate. You didn't do as well as you would have liked to. Okay, but why? so what? when I went on the podcast, I was so fissured by my personal life being in turmoil that it showed I was unable to stay on point without getting emotionally wrecked by so much that was going on knowing I have a stalker in my life who was doing everything that she could at that time to sabotage my happiness, just like I'm sitting before you now without a passport because of the actions of a stalker. Like, people can't understand what that means to your life, but then I started thinking about it. The more I make a deal about that, the more I'm embarrassing my daughter. So I'm not... I, I actually had a chance... Uh, four months ago to have her mother arrested and everything and I declined my daughter has a stepbrother and I know she doesn't want them to be embarrassed oh, I'm going to just let it go mm -hmm. but yeah it's really difficult that I have all these things going on around the podcast so I couldn't go there I had two movie meetings I had just struck this movie deal about my life being made all these things were going on and to not sleep all night after being set up like that with Oprah uh, Winfrey's husband really made it hard to deal with, man. You know, I was in the Bur uh, Burbank area after the podcast, and I was hiding behind a dumpster reading all these messages from the people that watched it. Did he do it live? Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't believe the messages, man. Hmm. The first 5,000 were just super positive. Then came all the crazies. And I'm like, don't worry about them. I've never taken to heart anything anyone's ever said about me. You wonder why? Why is that? 
I spent 23 years with people calling me a rapist murderer. I think I can handle bad name calling. You know what I mean? Oh, and not just a rapist murderer. I had to be a sick, psychotic, stalking rapist mm. murderer. You know what I mean? Like they had to twist it. So I don't know. I've always felt like if you really make an effort to go out and learn a lot about someone, to send them a message and tell them all these horrible things, aren't you really just showing how much they own you? Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Like I've, I, I'm serious. If you go out of your way to write me a letter like that or even one that big, that means you made an effort to really think about Nick. So what other what words would you have for someone that hasn't been through your situation and they are struggling with hate? Like, how would they navigate that themselves? Hate is the measure of your own ego. If you let someone make you hate them, listen to that. Mm. You've allowed them to own you, man. I ain't spending any of my days with hate because I really believe what the Native American said upon your board uh, upon the day of your birth you're assigned so many heartbeats do not waste them in anger it's a great way to it's think about good. it yeah I don't want like I got like I don't know 2 million beats left I'm not giving you 50,000 beats of anger these are my beats you know what I mean? So I, I always do that when I get to that feeling. Like, I've had people deliberately try to make me insane by torturing me, physically doing disgusting things to me that are incomprehensible in prison, parading me around like a puppet, beating me senseless, humiliating me, didn't you have the um, the gladiator thing as well? Yeah, like, so make me fight men that were weak so I could stomp them just to make me feel horrible about myself. Dress me up for a visit and then come back at the last minute and tell me it was a lie my mom wasn't even mm. there. You know? That's the, I've that had, is like one of the worst, isn't it? It's giving you that hope again and taking it away. I've had people deliberately torture me, you get it? It's down to me that allow that to hurt. And it's a down to anyone. Look, if someone is deliberately aiming something at you, listen to that. It's done with deliberance. So you have a duty to step up and defend or care for yourself and protect yourself by actually laughing it off or not taking it to heart, right? I always always think about people saying, oh my God, I can't believe they said that. They're making me so crazy. No, you're sitting there making yourself mm. so crazy because your petty ass ego can't take the slight. Get over it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, I, I really did get some great blessings out of uh, being incarcerated. One, I have an enormous amount of self-respect. A person who has self-respect exhibits in two ways. When they're in the queue, they have an inordinate amount of patience for themselves and others because they have self-respect. When someone is attacking them, they don't retort because they don't need to. They have self-respect. You won't catch me on the internet in a prolonged argument with another person. You want to know why? I have self-respect.
and you're not wasting those heartbeats and you've and you've learned that obviously during your incarceration um so i'm gonna ask you i think quite a hard question here so you were incarcerated for 22 23 years um wrongly obviously which we've established had you not been incarcerated 23 years prior do you think you would have been incarcerated for something i actually think i would have been dead like all my childhood friends and my brothers the area where i came from was so violent and hard and the lifestyle that i had it was predicated upon all of the area environmental degradations right alcoholism drug use violence oxycontin wiped out a lot of my neighborhood i literally believe mark i think god saved my life by sending me to death row isn't it it's fascinating oxymoron in it or whatever you got it's yeah mad, it's, it's a dichotomy it? that it's true that i have managed to survive a severe harsh area where all my childhood friends are dead and my brothers are both dead but i survived by being sentenced to death mm. how's that same thing I keep thinking about when the courthouse got struck by light and my head, my life has been touched, man. I can't make it up. Well, that's something else I was going to say as well because if someone just met you on the street and your stories weren't the truth, it'd be unbelievable, wouldn't it? I know. Crazy. You'd go, how can this crazy guy make all this up? It just... I know, I get attacked. You couldn't attack. make all this up. I wish it was fictionalized. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The two biggest laughs in my life is someone impersonated me on Reddit and killed my dad off years ago. <laughs> Sadly, he just died a couple of weeks ago. But And the other one uh, that's really fascinating to me is that people are in disbelief that a lot of things have happened. Even though I went through legal twice, HarperCollins, when you publish a book, you have to go through legal. That means a team of lawyers are going to go through every part of your prison record and all those things. I've been through legal twice. The Fear of 13. In the beginning of the film, it says all of the actual events have been verified, and yet I'm still called a liar. Mm. It's crazy. I know I've had an extraordinary life. I wish... I wish some of it wasn't as grandiose and huge as it is, but it is, and I have to live with that. Look, I'm the only person I know in which Tony Robbins and his beautiful wife, Sage Robbins, are organizing Gerard Butler Week, where me, like nobody, is having these powerful people in life organize an event at their home so Gerard Butler can come there and see a screening of a film that Alejandro Monteverdi's making so that Gerard Butler could say yes to $12 million of playing me in a movie and then I'm back on the streets being a bum in the woods. Didn't you want Chris Pine to pay you or something? Like I that? did. Yeah. Hmm. I, so it's even weirder. I'm sitting there on YouTube. Uh, uh, someone sends... I get a phone call. Nick, you're all over YouTube. I said, oh, shit. What is it this time? I said, no, the Ben Foster, the beautiful, brilliant actor, Jeff Bridges, and Chris Pine are being interviewed about what they watch. And Chris turns to the camera and says, 
oh my god have you seen the fear of 13 and ben foster takes out a notepad he's like what and i'm like you know what i mean so i got to sit down with dinner at chris when i met him in los angeles i've been to lunch with tim robbins from the shawshank redemption where a guy comes across the room and he's like oh my god it's you and he goes right past tim and gives me a hug <laughs> and tim's like get in there you know so yeah, I'm I'm best friends with Muhammad Ali's daughter. I've I've had some crazy experiences where like the head of the Swedish mob is one of my favorite uh, friends, and he's involved with the trash bag murders from Sweden and all this. Like I've had a life, you know what I mean? So, do you think you attract mayhem? No, I am meant to know things so that all in courses after courses i can look in linear form how it's all meant to be so whatever that is look everything in my childhood set me up to handle death row becoming violent and all those things and being able to survive any environment put me on death row was just like being back in philly then in the post hoc era of being incarcerated the multitude of changes to humanity, the mindset of people that I would have to deal with, thank God I become so well educated that by the time I got out, I had to deal with people on a whole new level where I was doing dissertations on them in my head about the dysfunctions about them while they were telling me simple things like, you know, if you don't pay your cell phone, it don't keep working every month. Hmm. See what I mean? So what were some of the, the biggest shocks when you re-entered the world? I was just about to ask that. <laughs> yeah, because obviously I, I, I kind of think about it a bit Your like... Your dad would know this one. You ready? Yeah, go on. Clicks. <laughs> when he grew up, there was only certain boys in the schoolyard you would have to be so cool to stand next to, to talk to, and hear what their opinions were. No one shared their opinion. You get it? Right, okay. You had to be really tight with someone to know their opinions. Mm. So people were more guarded. No. Your opinion was more valuable. You know, it, it really was fascinating. You weren't allowed to go into a pub and sit with the older guys and hang out and talk because you weren't privy to what they were discussing because you weren't cool enough. Mm. You see, their yeah. opinions had a real value nothing it doesn't matter anymore everyone's opinion is on show on split so that really was the other thing then the other thing is this society is the complete opposite of prison in one way structurally if i was to make a comment about you in a prison about your family why you were there or what you were in life you'd kill me or you would be provoked into attacking me because I was challenging who you were in life. In society, on the internet, the first three tacks on you are your beliefs, your family, and why you're there. And it's instant. No hesitation, no fear, no reprisal. Mike Tyson calls it the keyboard gangster. What I call it is the detached gangster who doesn't understand there's consequences for a belief system if you live that way. It's okay to expound them, but if you live that way, right? But this is what I found out was so different about 
everything. No one valued their opinions to keep them guarded. No one kept secrets of like delicacy. Like it was really rare when you got these big scandals back in the day. Now everything's Jerry Springer. Mm. Yes. And, and I didn't like how, and I'm, I'm sad to say this too, we were becoming hard pressed to care about each other at the same time falling in love with one another from afar because of the internet. So we're trading off an intimacy for this weirdness of connectivity where me and him could be brothers and we're sitting at the same table. We love each other, but we're on our phones. And we ain't talking no more. And that breakdown of that bond is there, but our bond is sharing now the TikToks and we're really on a new vibe and we're not in the same room with everyone else. So it's all this detachment. Yeah. It's fascinating. I agree. My biggest pet peeve is when people are at a dinner and they're on their phones. You know, it's like, why can't you just be present and enjoy the time with the break people up, that you're man. with? Instead break of... off, break off. Yeah. Yeah. I um, a, pers a personal favorite part of your story for me is the prison break when you broke out of prison. Oh, we just would love to discuss over that. that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. I there's had so, to bring it back. The trouble oh. is, guys, watching this, there's so much to admit. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable, isn't it? And um, we, we, we've yeah. got to get onto yeah. that. All right, so one of my favorite parts of my life was being 24 years old, super fit, being transported to court for a hearing in which I thought I was being rewarded with a new trial. I was just so eager to get this thing going. It was February 15th, 1985, the coldest night of the year. There was snow all over the ground, and I was just in a sheriff's vehicle for the past five hours when we stopped in Exton, Pennsylvania to go to the bathroom. The vehicle pulled over at the gas pumps about 25 yards away from the cubicles where the toilets were located, and the officer who was a passenger, escorted me back to the toilets. The other officer stayed with the car, got gasoline put into the car, I imagine, and he lit a cigarette or whatever, stood there. Mark, you would know this, man. When you come out of a warm car in the wintertime, what's the first thing that affects you, brother? Well, you're bloody cold. Your eyeglasses. Yeah. Oh, of course. As soon as you go into a room, you steam up. Right. You're going to get this more than anybody else in this room right now because mm. I went into that cubicle and I was standing there weeing and what happens when you're looking down with eyeglasses? Mm. Your face fogs up again because yeah. you're in the cold, warm mm. body. Got it. I can't see anything. I can see the outlines of everything, you know? The officer lets me come away from using the urinal and I go under his arm, which he's holding the top of the door, I ducked down and now I'm running with foggy eyeglasses thinking this officer's beside me to the vehicle I just got out of only to be left short at the door frame. And he did that because he, at the age of 60-something, needed to go to the toilet so badly he said he couldn't make it. He had to make that choice. And this is what changed everything. I went flying back to the car and the officer back at the car turned around and immediately pulled his weapon, thinking I overpowered his partner and fired a shot. No warning, no stop, halt, none of that, just pow. I didn't even know what to do, man. 
I know I felt the percussion of the blast coming at me. I turned around, and when I did, I went to make that running motion, but your arms are together with the handcuffs, and I couldn't move, you know? And my legs became akimbo, they call it, and I fell out of joint and went down. I ripped all the skin off my hands. I couldn't believe the pain. And it just, like, kicked me into gear. I ran towards this restaurant. Are you thinking clearly at this stage, or are you just going, like, it's crazy street, in your it's mind? It's street instincts. The cops are chasing me once again in life, you know, for the 50th time. Fight or time, flight, yeah. isn't it, yeah. really? But I was trained back in the city how to deal with the cops chasing you, man. So I ran right like I was going to run right through that plate glass window. He was behind me, made sure you line up so he, he can't fire. If there's people on the other side and bullets, he won't fire. Dart around the building, went down to the intersection where a petrol station was. No cars to steal. Turn right, turn right again. Come right back behind the cop car that you just jumped out of and lay down. It was the best place to go because they're not going to look behind the vehicle. I mean, who does that? Mm. But that's what we used to do as kids back in Philadelphia. If the cop chases you down Ardell Street. You run all the way around the corner. Then you go back to Ardell Street and hide behind his car because he's going to get in his car and he's going to drive off. Mm. <laughs> so It's the last place I think to check. Yeah. And that's what we used to do as kids. So that's what I did during the escape. And then the helicopter came in. Oh, my God. Out of nowhere, I was crossing this open area, and someone had seen me and reported me leaving uh, the back of a police station that I was hiding at. And he came down on me with the, te with the blades and the rotors just chopping everything. Luckily for me, there was so much snow that when he came in, he was blowing up so much snow, I was being lost to him because the forward-looking infrared wasn't functioning, but his candlelight was. A million candlelight power. Unbelievable bright. He put the power light on me, and he saw me, but he went over me that first time. I'll never forget. That's when I started trying to run for his rotor, trying to stay under his tail, but he kept whipping around on me. But the more he kept coming back around, the swirls would just undo it. That started a four-hour chase by a helicopter, man. I was running through the woods without care what those tree limbs and everything were doing to me. I can't believe you were so fit to be able to run for that long. Yeah. Like, adrenaline is a hell of a motivator. I remember the strangest thing that happened was there was a giant parking lot for the Exton area mall that had been snow plowed and on the back right corner there was a gap in the fencing and the floor and I didn't know it he had me pinned pretty good in this area and I was running to the end and there's a 10 foot fence I didn't think I was going to make the fence and I was running up to it I was just like almost out of breath I couldn't take any more and then I stumbled and I hit my face and I remember slaloming on my face and I went right underneath the fence. <laughs> because the snowplow had pushed the fencing back, there was a gap drop off. So I actually went on my face and then dropped into the gap 
and then 200 yards down an embankment of railroad tracks. And I remember to this day the feeling, and then I was waiting for the impact, something to hurt me, but it was all soft snow. Crazy. <laughs> Slid right down to the bottom. And I got up, and after he, sh he flew over me a couple of times, I remember I got up out of the snow and I shook it all off me like that. And I just looked and I started walking. I just started walking and I walked five miles on the railroad tracks and I made it to Fraser, Pennsylvania and I stole a car, a 65 green Mustang with the non-locking uh, Do you remember ignition. that then, Dad? No, well, we didn't have them over here, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, this, that's for the sure. little green Mustang, you know, the little pony car, right? Mm. Yeah, they had them over here, but yeah. So I stole that little Mustang and I drove to New York City and uh, I got a, a flop house room for $14 a night with the money my sister gave me. And I got a thing of bologna, a loaf of bread, and a box of Epsom salt and went into the room and started caring for myself. What state are you in physically at this point? I was pushed. I hadn't slept for about 20, what, 30-some hours, right? Yeah, I hadn't slept. I was all nervous going to court, so that was at 4 a.m. Then you get out there at 8, then I have to drive through the mountains, that's 5, then the next day, yeah, so, yeah, I was exhausted. I remember I was in so much pain with my hands that when I put the Epsom salt into the water to bathe in, to put my legs in, because all my legs were damaged, I got a thing on the back of my foot to this day where my foot split. It's crazy all across the back of the heel. And it's still like four inches long. So what are your thoughts at this point? You know, like you, you, you've run away, you've got away, you're a fugitive on the run. Are your thoughts like, I've escaped, I'm free? What, what are your actual thoughts? Because I wanted to go into the television studios in New York City and tell my story. But I didn't think anybody would give me a chance. I thought they would jump me, you know? Mm-hmm. So did you ever plan to have a life like where you didn't go back to jail after that? Did so, you think you would stay on the run forever? No, when it happened, like I, I kept thinking of where could I go, you know? So I was going to try and go to Suriname in South America, an English-speaking country with $300 a year as a, like average salary down there at that time. It's like right next to Devil's Island where they had Papillon written, you know, one of my favorite books. Now, I used to sit in my cell with um, a map of the world and just look at it all day and pick out places I could, you know, think about going. So when the escape happened, I was just trying to get out of America. I was 24 years old. I wasn't really fully developed as a man. And I knew one thing. I wasn't very clever. I had to go back. Back to jail? Yeah. To read more books and... No. Because if I couldn't pull this off, I had two choices. Kill myself or keep running and let them abuse my brothers and probably kill one of my brothers. So I'm not smart enough to do this. I got to go back. Didn't you find your way to um, to Florida as well? Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about that before. All right, so 
I was in New York City and I stole a men's fur coat and his wallet was in it. And I went to his house and robbed his house while he was in New York. So looking back at that now, do you feel regret for you know, stealing the car, the, the obviously the money, the fur coat? Or is it an occupational hazard at that point? No, I think after he tried to blow my brains out, I got really scared that it was like setting me up because I got my case remanded back to the county. You have to understand, they really did try to murder me, and I thought they were trying to murder me in a different way. So part of me thought that they set me up, like they let me run so that they could shoot me, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you look at the the, ev- the way that they tried to destroy the evidence from my trial, maybe they did, I don't know, but I, I just know it's the craziest feeling is I knew I had to go back. I just had to go back. I couldn't run from this. This was too big. You know that feeling? Mm-hmm. You, some things in life, you got to just go back. I don't care about the beating. Whatever you face, you just can't run from it. But then knowing that you had to go back and you know, still committing these crimes, like breaking and entering into someone's home and stealing their cars, do you feel any sort of regret for that? Because it was all done you know, knowing that you would go back. So technically, you stood nothing to gain. And isn't that yeah. one of the reasons why you can't go to Canada now because of what, what yeah. you did when you were escaping? Yeah, so uh, actually, yeah, because I escaped from prison. I have convictions. I'm not allowed, and in, in, I'll always be a convicted felon. So I feel horrible for everything I did in regards to that incident especially, but I was so driven and desperate to try and find any way out of this madness at least I made up for it by going back. That's what I kept thinking. I didn't want to go. I swear to God, I kept thinking, if I can go out there and rob some criminal, at least I'm not going into a mom and pop grocery store and shooting somebody in the head for $50. You know what I mean? So I deliberately tried to go out and find criminals to rob, not citizens. Mm. But it was all splitting hairs with this and at this feeling. Look, ever since I was a child, I've had this feeling I was meant to take some crazy long journey. I've always had flashes in my head about things that come true, and I don't know why. Some of this keeps coming back to me, but I feel like I was meant to go through all this. It doesn't make sense otherwise. There's just so many extraordinary things, not just the times I almost died or the things that I've gone through, But in the extraordinary reality is I shouldn't be sane enough to have any message at all, and yet I do. So I regret the folly and the times I let myself down, the things that I did wrong because I should have listened sooner. I I really do want to live out the rest of my life trying my best not to let myself down again. And I can only hold my hands up and say, God, what an idiot I was for what I did do. But that's not me. I believe you. I know, I try every day. I really would. Like, before I left America, I did two things. I gave away everything that I owned because I believed in doing that. I didn't want to squabble over selling the RV. And there was a family that had an autistic child. And it was such a good feeling to see them crying and happy that they would have somewhere, you know? So I keep thinking about it. 
Maybe the only way I can make up for being that person is being this person now. Dedicatedly so, yeah? Look, I've, I haven't seen my daughter in 10 years. I've lost millions of pounds. T tell me about the money because that's something else people do talk about. They torture about. me about this. Yeah. I never had $4 million. At the time of the exchange rate was 1.9. So is this the $4 million for compensation? Yeah, compensation. Right. Yeah. I filed a lawsuit and had to fight them for it, but my wife and I deteriorated because she was very aggressive. I'm surprised it's not more than four well, million who, anyway. Who says, stealing who that many says it's four million? This is why I'm trying to tell you. It mm. was never four million dollars. Mm. My lawyer got 35% off the top for representing me in the settlement. They would have thought that should come extra from them. No, not they being taken out of yours. No, Jack Beavers took his share, so he got a quarter of it. Then the exchange rate in 2008 was 1.9 and looking like it was going north of two. Mm. So my wife convinced me to have the money brought here to England and so it got cut in half again. I ended up with 1.35 million pounds and my wife and I split so I gave her half. I ended up with 650,000 pounds. I bought a house for me and my daughter, Laura, down in St. Leonard's on Sea, and I thought I would ride it out here. And everything went topsy-turvy from there. I met a woman named Jessie, fell in love with her, tried to replace the love that I was losing with my daughter with her, spent six years of my life with her, and she left me. The movie Fear of 13 comes back out. I get back on the hope horse again and go riding off. I meet Laura. I get married to her. We have a child together with SIDS interferes with. All this crazy stuff. Did you get paid for the 13 documentary? No. no, and you know what? That's why I'm so happy that I'm friends with David Sinkton, the director, again. I made some uh, false statements and mistaken statements against my friend. The film uh, had such heavy investment. He hasn't made a lot of money off of it and David's a really good man and I'm sorry I'm so sorry David I love you and I never want to lose your friendship again I'm glad we're buddies again and you're a brilliant director and uh, I didn't make more than a couple of 30,000 pounds from that film okay but that was brilliant a couple months ago we put things back together and so I am you not very happy about that at the time I ended up selling my rights to get Jesse a green card and all that. Your it's rights so the, bitter. Your oh. rights to your whole story or your no, rights to that yeah, program. Yeah, to that program. Okay. So now I I have a brand new program that I just finished where I drove across America. And it's called Life After Death. I uh got in touch with Arthur Landon, the billionaire, and he very graciously put up the funding for that documentary to be made. So we've now turned it into the story of four lives. And I think the last I heard it was being made into an animation documentary, right, which yeah. is next level. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be sold, presumably as soon as it's being finished now. And that will take care of me because author has made it plain that his intentions was to fund the documentary instead of giving me money like a beggar in the street. He gave me my dignity.
Do you understand that? Yeah. So he funded a documentary of which I am the principal rewarding person once it sells. But it's been four years in the making. Mm. And it all started actually, ironically, off of a different project that I was doing about getting my friend off of death row. I'm not allowed to be his friend. Why is that? This is going to be money, isn't there? Well, and they think that you're going to benefit from it? or His druggy brother was so high when Walter got out of death row, he showed up at the press conference with no shoes on, out of his mind on cocaine, and had beaten his missus up severely the night before. So Walter got out of prison and had to live with strangers he never met because his brother went right back to prison. But they put a wall up around him, so I'm not allowed to be his friend because there's money involved. Mm. And not the he, guy that got him out. Well, he, he's actually out now. You've managed I got to him get out. him out. I got him off of death row. Mm. I did everything I could to get the district attorney's office in Philadelphia to listen to me, mm. including giving up my chances on death row stories, the first and ever only person to turn them down and say, no, put Walter's story up there. He's innocent. And I got him out. And I drove with my family across America and we went to Philadelphia to meet him. And I only got to see him for about 15 minutes. And then I wasn't allowed to be his friend no more. That's crazy because you've done the opposite. Like you said, you've given up a chance to make some money maybe with your story out there. You can and, see that you're not in it for the money. I know. And is that his choice or that's his team around him's choice? It's team around him. Yeah, it's a shame when it happens. But you know you've done the right thing and it'll all come good in the end. Yeah. But surely he can override it. Like... He doesn't have that mindset. Mm. Right. He's diminished. Right. Walter's a good person, but he operates on a different level. And I'm happy for him. I'm I'm just praying that it'll be good. But I felt really struck by the irony that he was going through the same thing as me. When I got out, everybody had a big alcoholic party in my house, and it ended on, on a fight on my first night home. Same shit. Poor Walter gets out. His brother's so out of his mind on drugs. Walter's got to go and live with strangers because his only family member is in prison again for beating his missus up. Mm. So I realized I was being pulled out of the situation so I wouldn't be sucked into the sorrow and mentally getting hurt by it. So maybe God's protecting me. Look, every time I, I think about the things that have happened to me, I always cry and go back on a linear feel of like, why and i can see so many times i was being protected not to be friends with that person because they would have just hurt me or i wasn't meant to get this project i know it's crazy that i stood on the stage in geneva and i addressed the human rights council and i should have ted talks and billions of books sold and i should be very well done but i can't connect with someone like you until all these things are paid for Every window I broke as a kid still has to be broken, paid for. Uh, and maybe I'm, I'm still destined to be in poverty for a while until I earn it. I don't know. But I do know this. Man, it's been an interesting life, and I'm so grateful I'm living it. What is your stance on, like, women now? Because it sounds like women have cost you a lot of money. And I was going to no, say as well, you've fallen in love a lot of times over your, the course of your life. I just I know I just broke up with my wife again I just got my ass whooped again didn't I so I gave up everything to come back here and be with Laura and guess what 
it didn't work. So are women more attracted to the uh, the bad boy? No, I think or there's a there's boy. a there's a combination mixture of things that draws women to men. One of them is the irrevocable bond they have with their own father or male figures in life. I have a uniqueness about me in which I'm able to articulate words and women are verbose. They love words and they love to be spoken to. Um, I've had, fuck, four marriages, man. And you mentioned uh, you had the stalker as well. Was that one of your yeah, that's ex-wives? My, yeah, yeah, that's one of my ex-wives. Have you I had, had one in, I got married to a woman while I was in prison and divorced mm. while I was in prison, so we'll scratch that one. I was married here, uh, married to an English woman here. I married an English woman in Las Vegas and wasted a perfectly good helicopter ride over the Strip. And then I married Laura on a beach in Los Angeles with a Muslim preacher who got a Native American certificate to get it done, and now I'm single, so. And it's cost you a lot of money. No, I keep thinking about this. No, I willingly enjoyed spending the things that I did spend, but yeah, I got manipulated by my first wife into giving her a million dollars under the guise that they were going to take it off me anyway when I left her. And it was my compensation money and she should have never gotten it. But I did give it to my daughter. So I rationalized that I was giving it to my daughter. So all the attacks that she's ever made on the internet about, I never did child support, I gave you a million dollars for my child to be cared Mm. for. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I realized that the millions upon millions of dollars and pounds that I lost really don't matter because I have talent. I have a brand new television series that I've written called The Integrity Unit that it could be the next Sopranos, the next Breaking Bad. David Chase is never going to have to work again for writing The Sopranos. You know what I mean? I want to be like Kurt Sutter and write Sons of Anarchy and have a hit TV show. I have talent. I have ability. Whatever I lost is just coins on the sidewalk or it's my ego telling me I wasted all this money on women. That's some lame shit to say. Mm. What, when I was tapping that fine ass and I was having a great time and men were envious of me, yeah. it was all good, right? Mm. No, don't be, that, don't be that bloke. If you spent money or you lost money because of a relationship with a woman, you lost money or you spent money anyhow, so let it go. Just don't make it about the girl. Look, yeah, uh, some of the females, like, God bless her. Jesse just became a U.S. citizen this year thanks to my gift of letting her go to America with me. And her father and me are still best friends. And it was heart-rendering when he said, you know, I just spoke to Jesse and she called me and said, Dad, guess what? I'm a U.S. citizen. I took my test and I'm now a citizen. And he said, well, you remember who brought you there, girl? And I felt bad that he'd have to say it because I love that man. But look at the good that, see what I mean? Look, we got to work on our ego, guys, because we keep doing this thing where we want to strike it big, but we don't want to own it when it's not striking it big. 
It's got to be somebody else's fault, or we wasted it. Yeah, I, really I think one that. of the things we find when we speak to people that have made it, and also those that have lost it, is that they'll get it again. You know, they'll move themselves back up the ladder. It's only a case once you've got that knowledge and that information. You're there, aren't you? Again, right. it's only a matter of time. I'm doing it right now and right before your eyes. Yeah, I learned the documentary film business. I now have a brand new documentary that's being finished while I'm making a brilliant one about my friend with cancer that's going to change hundreds of millions of lives. So I didn't get paid off the first rodeo, but now I have my own. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I all right. I learned I can write. I'm not a script writer. I learned my lanes. Stay in your lane, work with the others. I have a meeting being set up, I think on the 5th or 6th of July with people who are trying to sincerely get those projects going. If it works with them, fine. But I'm going to get there. You want to know why? Because I once sat down and I wrote a letter asking to give up. That ain't today. Mm. And as long as that ain't today, I'm going to do this. I really do believe... My life wasn't a mistake. And if it's not a mistake, then it happened for a purpose. If it happened for a purpose, then I better believe in that. I mean, I really do. Well, we've mentioned it in this podcast, but one of my best films, my my best of all time films is The Shawshank Redemption. I think the story of your life will trumpet. Yeah. Written by Richard Bachman. There you go. But it's really Stephen King. I read all of his short stories, The Running Man and all that. And then when I read Stephen King, I was like, hey, man, he's ripping this guy off. Then I found out it was a non de plume. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I have a script. Alejandro Monteverdi just released a brand new film called The Sound of Freedom with Jim Caviezel. I met Alejandro in Los Angeles in 2015, and he promised to get this film made. And like I said, we've had efforts from like Tony Robbins and his wife Sage try to get Gerard Butler to play it. But I think that they've been going at it wrong. This needs to be Scott Frost. This needs to be a young actor because this happened to a 20-year-old kid. It didn't happen to me. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's the story. And I think when we get it to that point, I would love to go back and get that redone so it's directed and acted out by a young person yeah mm. how old are you 24 i'm nearly 25 well we both are and uh, next week at the age of your life right now i had already come back from being on the fbi's most wanted list do you see how young you feel right now yeah like when you were saying you didn't feel like you'd fully formed as a man at 24 i said yeah i'm sorry yes yeah, so you you get it yeah mm. that's what the film needs to be about not the mature man unless they do it backwards but look my primary concern is i want to get a tv series written and i want to get this next documentary made and i want to get my speaking set up if all else fails i want to get myself a food truck and make myself happy making the best philly cheesesteaks in england I want to go around and blow people's minds when they're talking to me and they're telling me their problems I'm just going to get through to them. And they come down near here so we can taste one. No, I, I, <laughs> my brother's ashes are here in Kent because yeah. of the Mick Jagger uh, Performing Arts School where Mick Jagger met Keith Richards. 
I made a promise myself after he passed away and I brought his ashes here to Kent. So definitely Kent's on the menu, yeah? Awesome. <laughs> but it'd be so cool to go around. I think every time I tell somebody, they're like, oh, get me a cheesesteak. Oh my God. Not no crap one. I'm talking about Philadelphia Stromboli's and Calzones and cheesesteak. Like, mm. I, so, I think that something that we should talk about yeah. is the the woman that you met when you were in jail. I think that's an important part of the story because that actually leads on to your release, if I'm not mistaken. Well, in some ways it does, but it really taught me how to speak to women. So imagine that I was 27 years old. My appeals were in ruins and I meet a woman who begins to fancy me and I absolutely hate myself for it. I have to deal with the fact that I'm such an embarrassment. I put myself on death row with a lie that I would rather have this woman think I murdered someone than know that truth. Mm. Do you understand? Mm. That was the biggest challenge of my life was to try and overcome my self-disgusting hatred of myself to allow a woman to fancy me. Men have this problem. I promise you, gentlemen, no woman can possibly love you as long as you're hating yourself. And the only way you can get a woman truly love you is to let go of the things about yourself you're hating yourself for because she can't get past them if you don't even know them yourself. Jackie, she came to visit me to interview me about the horrors I was enduring and I refused to complain. Like all the other inmates that were brought out were telling her about the gladiator or they're throwing coffee in my face or playing with my food. I had no complaints. She was befuddled by the fact that I wouldn't complain about prison so much so she had to come back the next week on her own to ask me all about it. Were you playing the long game then? No. Were you trying to intrigue Yeah, her? it's that where you've just got serious game. Yeah. yeah. Dude, I was so horrified that a woman would fancy me because I was wearing thick prison eyeglasses. I was losing most of my hair and I didn't know what I looked like. Mm. You see, I didn't have a mirror in myself. Were you scared that she would fall in love with you and then obviously... Have feelings for me, period. Yeah. I was afraid she would have disgusted feelings for thinking I was a rapist murderer. I was afraid that she was going to judge me mm. for being dim-witted enough to put myself on death row with my mouth, not with my deeds. It was very complex and challenging to have a very attractive 32-year-old woman walk into a prison wearing a dress and makeup and you haven't been with anybody man and you're 27 years old and you're thinking geez how am i dealing with this how am i even getting past the male female part when i can't get past all this you know and how does that relationship even work i mean to go from that stage of meeting nine years down the line and you're married to her while still in prison i mean yeah, we how, had a we how had did a you full get married though. We had a full blown marriage, <laughs> yeah. man. We in had prison. fights. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was allowed to marry her in a prison ceremony in which I was wearing handcuffs, and I was allowed to hold her hand for fifteen minutes, and that was the only time I touched her. Did you get a kiss her? Yeah, at the yeah. end, you were allowed to give her a kiss. At the end, wow, that was it. 
But what two guards what, standing what, there with shotguns? What's there for her? It's <laughs> quite a marriage relationship. <laughs> you know, this is the strange thing because it's not right. uncommon in a nah, state. Nah, but see, it? all right. So imagine a woman being married to a man who's incapacitated. It's like asking her, "What is it?" The unadulterated, unending, unfaltering love. Jackie got a 10-page letter written from me every day full of very clever, loving things. Jackie was the center of my world. That is the dream of any woman, really, to be the center of a man's world where he doesn't have time to think, act, or care about anybody but you. That's a woman's dream. That's the reward for her. Because I was a bit clever and because I had the ability to converse with her and have something really about me, I guess, that she was drawn to, it was magical, man. I was happy on death row. I was so in love with Jackie. I was actually happy, Mark. I would go around helping others on death row and writing letters to their mom and feeling good about myself. Jackie taught me how to talk to a woman. I owe her a lot in that regard because I never really got it. A woman doesn't want you to tell her what she wants to hear. She wants you to tell her what she needs to hear from you. If you pay attention to what that woman needs to hear from you, Man, you'll have warm arms and a nice bed every night. I made my choices with my partners out here based on love. I can't help the circumstances in life that blew it apart or ruined that, but it's not me. I am going to find somebody lovely again and start over again. I just waited out for a while. So going back to Jackie, was it... um you know, obviously she was 32, she's a woman, she knows her biological clock is ticking. Was that an issue with this or not, really? You know, it was funny, none of that would have really mattered because when I met her, it wasn't that long afterwards, I found out about DNA and I thought I was gonna be released right away. Right. So we got married thinking, I got the evidence, we're getting out. Didn't she introduce you to the fact that this new DNA thing was even available? Well, she was the one that started helping me where my mom couldn't. She went on the original Sally Jesse Raphael TV show for me. She was out there doing press interviews, calling laboratories. There was no internet. She was tracking down uh, leads for... Uh, she got me in touch with uh, Sir Alec Jeffries from here in Leicestershire and began my pen pal of friendship with him because of her. So Jackie was instrumental in trying so hard in getting me out because she knew I was innocent by the DNA efforts and we had plans to have a family, you know? And then it just went three years, four years, five years, six years... And that's what Seven killed the years. relationship. Do you think yeah. you'd still be with her had you got out? I don't know, but I do know this. Fair is fair. If you can leave me to die and go off and be happy, 
then do just that. And Have you spoken to her since? I went and had breakfast with her when I first got out. I drove all the way to Pittsburgh. I got a, a car loaned to me. I thought and you were going to say you stole a yeah. car and drove to Pittsburgh then for a minute. No, I got <laughs> just, to, so just to clarify, just it was a loan. It. <laughs> it, was a, it was an actual loaner of a yeah. car, and I drove all the way 400 miles out to see her, and I took her out to breakfast. And it was odd. It wasn't my Jackie. It was lost. Yeah, it was strange. The lady, the beautiful, elegant woman who walked into my world and enraptured me was gone and I was gone and we were talking about 15 years ago when we started it I've never even told anybody that it's crazy but I remember sitting at breakfast with her and I was like God who are we you know do you remember when we first started this and she said like God, I thought maybe 1990, we would have got out when we got the evidence found. I was like, babe, remember 93 when I got stabbed so bad? I thought I was going to die, you know? And it just went weird. There was a a 400-pound gorilla in the, the room named Bob, but he wasn't there. He was back at her house. I tried to touch her hand. I don't even know why I'm doing this today, but I remember I was, I wanted to touch her hand like we used to do. I was never allowed to touch her, so at the bottom of the visiting, there's a metal mesh. And when we say goodbye, we would feel the heat of each other's hands through the metal, you know? When she got up to go, I was, I was like, oh, shit. Do you feel like that gave you some closure on the relationship? Are you happy that you went and had the, the breakfast? Yeah, break? I did the gentlemanly thing. I knew it was goodbye no matter what because I'm, I paid for it when she left. I had no one to help me. I have a really brilliant friend that lives in Poland right now named Yola. And she, she knew that Jackie leaving me really messed my head up. So she was a really good friend of mine. But I just, I determined that it was fair on all parties never go backwards. You can do so much damage trying to reinforce this, which I just experienced it. And I so, yeah. For you, those of you who don't know, like I came back to England with all these hopes and dreams of this big reunion and everything was going to be this amazing love story again in my life. And yet there's sometimes when there's so much damage done, you can't come back. So just like I can't hold and touch Jackie's hand to say goodbye, I have to let go of Laura too, man, that's killing me. But I have a very serious situation where I can't be involved in arguing and fighting. I just can't afford it. So for the safety and sake of everyone, better that I move on. I suppose it's like when you're talking about moving on from the money that you've lost and thinking about the money you can make in the future, it's thinking about the, the people you can meet in the future as well. Do the same thing. I'm never going to question the tolls of my life. 
the same brilliant feeling you and I have been sharing this last couple of hours is my gift. The only reason I can have it is because I'm willing to come out and find it, aren't I? Yeah. Here you go, fellas. Knock wood. None of us get that <laughs> feeling that we quit, yeah? 100%. I think it's time for your famous question, Dad. When is enough enough? When the people around you no longer can see you. That's the new one. We haven't had that one, have we? Well, that's very deep as well for a few words. Thank you, sir, but it's true. It is. It's enough when no one can no longer see you. That's enough, man. Mm. Thank you very much for watching, guys. Wow. If you enjoyed, make sure to smash that thumbs up button for the YouTube algorithm. And we will see you next Wednesday with a brand new podcast. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from these guys. See you later. Thank Bye. you all. Bye. Bye. Thank you for your Thank time. Thank you. That was great. <laughs>